20 square box. Blocks. Blocks. 20 square blocks. Square. If you'd wandered into Granary Lane Theatre in the mid-90s, you may have seen an angel hanging from the ceiling playing saxophone. But that wouldn't have been anything out of the ordinary. Kiwi Smart was part of the artistic co-op of this welcoming and inclusive space. We chatted about what went on there and what led to its closure in 2007. Uh, I've been around Ballarat for a while, since the turbulent mid-90s. I've uh, worked in a range of different areas in the arts and um, looking forward to taking a little trip down memory road. Memory lane, that would be. <laughs> it's a yes. granary lane. Yes, a granary lane. Now, is it known as the granary lane? Because I thought it was just the granary. No, it was known as granary lane. And it's not spelt like a granary normally would. It's spelt with an I. I don't know why that is. It's not a granary. It's a granary. All right. Well, we'll get back to the granary in a moment. You said you arrived here in the mid-90s. Where were you before that? My family's all in Melbourne. Um, yep. There was an amazing sculpture department up here at Fed Uni, out at Mount Helen. And I thought I'd come up for maybe six months or a year and then transfer back to Melbourne. That was about the extent of my plan. And I thought I was moving to the country and I'd probably go back to Melbourne most weekends and the rest of the time I'd just, you know, sit in my room and teach myself how to play guitar and write some poetry or something equally that sort of unplanned. So what happened? I arrived during O Week in 94, so late February. There were bands just pumping out of the uni and a very handsome young man came over and gave me a flyer for a place called The Rat, otherwise known as the Bridge Molin and suggested that I might want to hang out there. And quite frankly, after seeing him, I thought I probably did want to hang out there. And so I chatted to a few friends that were from Ballarat and they went, yeah, where else would you go? You'd go there, you'd go to the camp, you'd probably go to the union beforehand for dollar pots and you might go to the mellow. So I did and then I saw some amazing bands and I made some amazing friends and um, somehow I'm still here. Suck you in. Yeah, I've escaped a couple of times, but I've got to tell you, I really like the place. Um, so I keep coming back. <laughs> exactly what was the greenery? To my understanding, around the mid-90s, there were several independent theatre groups around Ballarat. Also, um, different performing arts groups, uh, perhaps circus groups, children's theatre, people who were looking for places to hold workshops, you know, just a whole lot of things that artists need space to do. So they were looking for a home for that. And several of the groups got together and said, look, we're all, we're all kind of looking for the same thing. And there's quite a history of um, co-ops in Ballarat. Um, they found this huge old bluestone building behind three shops in um, Doveton Street. It had laneway access, huge ceilings, um, and I gather at the time not a great deal else. Um, I got into this around the late 97. Uh, and they needed people to look after tickets, bookings and um, artwork sales. So my job was going to be sort of the visual art side of things and then things just sort of evolved from there. Um, and then as the years went on, uh, more theatre happened, also more um, workshops happened, but also uh, a lot more band kind of music stuff happened. So dance groups, theatre groups, eventually musicians. Yes. 
this was uh, this was a pretty fantastic project. Like realistically, um, they were really trying to make a home for everyone. I mean, we had disabled dance parties through Pinark. Be Glad was very big in those days. There was the Eureka Anarchists group. What the hell would they do? They had a lot of meetings. <laughs> I told them not to tell me what they did. It was probably safer that way. <laughs> there was the poets. Tristan Circus was there for ages. The DJs used to have like all night dance parties. Apparently you could hear from Black Hill. Right. Different hosts over the years. Um, Happy Wood, Len Hyatt all ran the trivia night themselves. The fabulous Shane Vandenacker ran the weirdest karaoke I've ever experienced. See, with, with this many things coming in, this can't have been a simple, smooth running place, surely. No, no, it was pretty chaotic. It was chaotic all the time. Um, but all these people sort of had a common goal to make creative things happen in Ballarat. So you would see a lot of them, you know, perhaps having a drink at the bar together um, after these projects had happened. I looked online and I saw some footage of, um, it did say who they were, uh, it did say Hap Haywood and Patty O'Driscoll. Patty O'Driscoll being, uh, they're in a boat. So I don't know if you can see in the in the video. Um, so that's that's a banana lounge, um, and the footage is the fabulous um, Rex Hardware and his crew from. In fact, that was such an early banana lounge. I'm not even sure if he was teaching at the uni yet. But the um, the uh, fed well, it would have been Ballarat Uni at the time. Um, light and sound course. They sponsored the lounge for us, so they did all the sound and light, and um, it was live broadcast over the internet, which probably doesn't sound very exciting these days, but at the time was pretty unbelievable. Rex and um, Bags and John Gorman and some other guys would, like, thread together, I don't know, giant boa constrictors worth of um, leads and cords. Uh, They were just absolutely enormous. I could barely get my arms around them. They would be thread around the space. So the first Banana Lounge would have been 90... Uh, 98, maybe, 98. Um, right, so the internet is barely born, really. I mean, it was... Yeah, this is really early. I mean, it was pretty amazing. Bags had some friends yeah. in Japan and they could they could see Banana Lounge in a bar in Japan. It all sounded absolutely outrageous at the time. Right. And it was pretty outrageous. They were the MacGyvers of the internet. I don't really understand. They just got some, you know... Oh, sorry, people are watching in Japan. Well, they could watch from anywhere in the world. Right. Um, I guess trying to actually explain to people how a live recording worked. Um, and I, I think there was sort of... Well, I don't know. I was running around trying to serve people in the bar, so I never saw the, play, <laughs> the recordings. But, um, yeah, so it was pretty crazy. What is this banana lounge you speak of? So uh, the Banana Lounge was the brainchild of Mick Trembath, who's a fabulous local musician and mad genius, pain in the ass kind of guy. Hi, Mick. <laughs> uh, so he came up with this idea that there's a winter festival coming, there's going to be mm-hmm. a bit of cash around. When we talk a bit, we're talking a tiny bit. And perhaps the council would like to throw us some cash and um, he would sort of create a smorgasbord of all the different stuff that goes on in um, the sort of creative scene of Ballarat. You know, so you'd have things like a band that you might have seen in a pub on a Saturday, uh, but all of a sudden they had clouds swinging and circus performers above them with a plastic screen with another band in the nude pretending that they were in their lounge room and some random roller skating waitresses kicking out 
free chocolates that turned out to be dog chocolates. So this is for people who are uh, not children? No. Um, look, back in those days, I don't know, maybe this still happens, but people like to take their children to <laughs> wacky um, arts events in those days. Um, some of those children are adults now. Um, I've got to say, nine out of ten seem to have come through okay. So, well done, kids. <laughs> no, not designed for children, but, you know, there were certainly children there. Mick and I went to see the mayor at the time, Councillor John Barnes, but what a legend, he's still out there. And we said to him, um, we need, I, I think, $1,500. Honestly, we, we ran that place off the smell of an oily rag. But um, Mick proposed this fantastic vision of people wandering in and then these red curtains uh, being there and then the music starts and then this exploding banana comes down a <laughs> flying fox shoots through the red velvet curtains, the curtains come open and a giant 10-piece African band shoots out. And he said, come on, John, give us some cash. We'll make this happen. It'll be bang. That'll be the opening of the Banana Lounge. And then we'll all dance the night away with an African band. So uh, how does it work again? This exploding banana does what? Comes down so a flying fox. So we had the scaffolding up one end and a mate who was a abseiler agreed to get in a banana suit and shoot down the flying fox. And in the meantime, a friend had been dating uh, Armour. He agreed to set up this little exploding chain of things as the banana went down the wire because he was very enamoured with this friend. Did they rehearse this? Um, look, I think Mick had explained to Ben kind of over and over again what was going to happen um, and that they needed to get out of the way because the banana was coming through. The banana shut down and they timed it perfectly and the techs pulled aside the curtains and the human banana shot straight through and the band were on cue and they were ready to go and Rex's techs were like, Choom! up came the music straight away as it came. It was, that was absolutely perfect. So when did the banana lounge come into the granary? Well, it's the late 90s. Right, so you saw the inception and the birth of the Banana Lounge in yep. the granary. I saw all sorts of births at granary. The most outstanding birth I ever saw was, uh, it was a play by Mel Hardikin. It was a Christmas play. And then they gave birth to um, the poet, Andrew Sutherland, who came out fully covered in hair gel and a pair of gold pants. That was, that was the most outstanding birth I saw at granary lane. But there were a few. There were a few pretty weird performance pieces about birth. Um, not in the Banana Lounge. I don't think Mick had a great deal of thirst for birthing scenes. You mentioned <laughs> circus. Uh, are we talking trapeze artists? Yeah, and so, so forth? they did trapeze. Oh, not so much trapeze. They did a lot of cloud swinging. So yeah. that's the, the material sort of trapeze. I'm assuming I best not to ask about OH&S. Uh, stilt walking, um, fire throwing, uh, fire breathing, um, juggling. Um, yeah, I, I think... Public liability insurance was sort of just, you know, kind of coming into being like it was around. I don't, <laughs> I don't remember many of us um, trying to dwell on it too much. But, you know, these people knew what they were doing. Yeah, look, they totally knew what they were doing, but you'd never get away with it now. And I think that's, um, you know, that's sad. But uh, we all survived, but um, I was probably pretty lucky in some ways. I just don't think you'd see that now. I mean, people sort of say wow, you know, it'd be great to do that all again. But I, I just don't think you'd be allowed to do that all again. We'd have to find another country to do that all again, you know. 
I certainly wouldn't have the balls to do all that again and I wasn't even doing the dangerous stuff, I was just there. Um, <laughs> that was really exciting. There was just people being really creative. I mean, Shane Vandenacker, anyone who ever saw his performance art is probably scarred for life. Um, <laughs> what what he, sort of stuff would he do? He was, one year he was, he was struggling. Now, please, I'm going to say the, the kind of headliner stuff that's going to get the shock, but please keep in mind these were all well-thought-out art performance pieces. But, I mean, one year he his back was slashed open um, during a performance and he'd already organised the trip to hospital. It was really slashed. If you ever meet him and you're um, bold enough to ask him to take his shirt off, you'll see a giant uh, stitched-in crucifix on his back from that performance. He was rolled in fire and had absolute bejeebas beaten out of him and he sacked, he got some performing artists to come and play the part of the sort of faceless fascist government and he sacked them because they just wouldn't kick him hard enough. So he went down to the pub, got pissed with a local band um, and grabbed a couple of the guys and they, they, he said to them, you know, I need this to be real. So they kicked the absolute shit out of him. Well, the um, next performance? It, live performance. These were all live. Um yeah, uh, the slashing one caused a lot of upset, like a lot of upset. We had to have an actual forum so different artists could talk to him about why he'd done such a distressing thing to them. I banned the year he got the apple shot off his head. I just couldn't. Sorry, what was that again? I, I, I banned a live performance. That was the only live performance I remember banning, but he was getting an, uh, an apple shot off his head with a real gun and I just couldn't, I just, I just couldn't take that extra step. So we, so they filmed it. He filmed it. I had nothing to do with it. Thanks very much. So that footage is still out there somewhere. And I've got to tell you, he was totally right because people just watched the footage on the projector and went, oh, yeah, some apples got shot. Whereas you could hear a pin drop in the live performances because I think we're all so used to looking at things on screens. I mean, when it's actually happening in front of you, it's, it's really full So what happened with this place? Why did it uh, finish? Um, you know, everyone had had a go. I reckon everyone who was involved in the arts in Ballarat had chipped in at some stage and gone, right, it's my turn. All right, I'll get in there. I'll get on that committee. I'll, I'll try and help. I think everyone was pretty tired. Uh, and it, it, the lease was up. So instead of renewing it, um, I think everyone just decided it was just too hard. Um, yeah, so we had, we sort of kept up small bands nights, um, small exhibitions and, um, and sort of kept that running for another year while we were sort of talking about finding another space, um, but we just didn't have the money to inject into another space. Plus, you know, size matters in Ballarat. That space was huge. It was brilliant, but it, you just couldn't hate it. One of the first times I ever went there was for a play called Kelly's Reign. must have been in about 95. And I remember I got there. And, uh, well, it's the, only f- it's the only play I've ever seen where a horse shat on stage and someone actually ran out with a little plastic thing and went, shit, I can't find the metal dustpan. Uh, it was a period drama, of course. And then uh, some people had actually saw me and, and they said, Kiri, Kiri, come over here. And they had a spare cushion and they stretched their blanket out because it was so cold, like physically freezing. And I was not in the know I was a newbie, so, um, yeah, so they saved me from the freezing cold Granary Lane. Was that always an issue there? Always. So there was a lot of dancing at Granary. Hence why I think the raves went so well, because people just danced their asses off to keep warm. <laughs> so the dancing was out of necessity? Yes. So it, it kind of makes sense that every artist that was connected with this place had a go at running it, and eventually the drive or their time of expressing themselves was perhaps over. 
Well, I mean, I think I think you could probably write a thesis about, you know, the Howard years and, um, you know, I mean, literally things were just not as affordable as they'd been. I think artists were having a lot more trouble um, doing creative things for their community without having to justify it to Centrelink. Just actually trying to pay the rent was getting harder and harder. I think a lot of the sort of original stalwarts were kind of over large share houses and were trying to step to the next period of their lives. Also, a lot of people had left town. I mean, it's pretty hard to make a living out of your art in Ballarat, so a lot of them had moved on to Melbourne and Sydney and wherever else they, they roam. So, yeah, there was, a, there was a lot of factors. But, I mean, I think generally for an artist-run initiative, 10 years is a pretty extraordinary run and Granary would have been there for about, about 94 to about 2007. So that's a pretty good run. Thanks for listening to 20 Square Blocks. If you like the show, do the things that podcasts ask you to do. Subscribe, like, review, and most importantly, tell someone you know. Thanks to my guest, Kiri Smart, who talks about herself in the first person. Original music for the podcast by Ryan Goodwin. Check out his other music at virtuallyryan.com. And thanks to Rex Hardware for other music and original audio from the Banana Lounge. Additional material was written by Anne Murison. Editing by the irreducible Ricky Cheno. And thanks to H Studios for the use of their studios. I'm Ben Plaza and this is 20 Square Blocks. Next time on the podcast, the legendary Hap Haywood frontman from The Dead Salesman, remembers back to his time at Granary Lane. A fella had OD'd in the toilet. And like we, we'd opened up the door and he had the needle in the arm and it was terrible and we rang the ambulance immediately. And I, um, I just read a book on Graham Parsons that week and Graham Parsons sadly overdosed and died. But um, there was a whole section about all these people around Graham Parsons tried to resuscitate him by putting ice cubes up, um, up his backside. So I was telling, I was right in the heart of that when it was happening and telling my mate who was sort of helping this guy out uh, that I needed to grab ice cubes from behind the bar and I grabbed them and um, started to unzip because I thought this, you know, we'll try it. And I was explaining to my friend what I was doing because he's going, what the hell are you doing? And uh, I said, you know, I read that Graham Parsons, when he overdosed, um, they stuck uh, ice cubes up his up, up, up his backside to, to wake him up. And But he said, but he died. He didn't work. And then this guy who OD'd, he, he woke up because he was hearing this bizarre conversation and, and hearing me rattling around with ice cubes in a bucket and trying to undo his pants. 